This episode of The Cutting Room is sponsored by Grass Valley's Edius 6. Check out the new Edius 6 at www.grassvalley.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? I'm Gordon Burkell and this is The Cutting Room. We're going to have a short intro today. We're actually interviewing Marco Paulini. He's one of the founders of Digital Film Tools. And we're going to talk about photocopy, digital film tools, how it came to be, And then afterwards, unfortunately, Lauren's not here today, so we can't have our usual talk afterwards. Our schedules just couldn't meet for the talk. But I will remind you about a few things. We do have coming up a pub night for editors, as well as a few prizes we're giving away. But in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Marco Paolini. I'd like to start with the beginnings of digital film tools. Can you tell me how you you started your career as a tape operator and you moved from the tape room to the editing room to the effects team? How has this affected your approach to developing plugins for film post specialists? Oh, I think it was about 10, 12 years ago. Well, actually, I started working at uh, Digital Film Works. I think it was 97. And, you know, we used a lot of off-the-shelf software for our needs, but we also had a lot of in-house software that we had certain individuals make for us so that we could do certain specialized tasks that you know things that weren't currently available so over the years had quite a little library of techniques and tools that we used and and we started to think you know there's there's probably some things that we're doing that other people may be interested as well and i I had uh, worked at uh, avid technology uh, in the past and had a bit of uh, product design background as well and met some programmers over the years of doing that and we decided to form a company to bring some of these tools and techniques to, to everybody else. Do you have any developing background of your own? or I don't. I mean, other than uh, being on the product design side, I came to Avid after uh, working many years as an editor. I was training other editors to learn how to use Avid editing systems traveling around the world. I, I moved into the product design aspect of, at the time, they had some software called Matador, which was paint and mm-hmm. rotoscoping, and then they had Illusion, which was uh, compositing, which would be you know comparable to today's Nuke software, okay. for instance. And I worked on that team, and, uh, you know, over the years of editing, you know, editing turned into effects editing and paint box work and more visual effects. So the job somewhat morphed depending on what year it was, you know. Mm -hmm. At first, we did very basic effects with uh, video switchers, cameras, and doing whatever we could. My partner's background, Peter Moyer, was that he was also an editor, did a lot of effects editing, eventually uh, ran the digital group at, uh, at the Post Group. And he did uh, Star Trek Generation and, you know, doing all the effects, you know, with cameras shooting lasagna for, you know, making the the texture maps for the planet, you know, Mm -hmm. really hands-on approach. So, you know, we come from both an editing and visual effects background. So, again, we we try and bring those tools and techniques, things that we need. But, you know, uh, we come more from a production background and we're more like, okay, what do we think we need that we don't currently have? Uh, in software to do what we need to do. So, you know, we, we have uh, programmers that, that do the actual programming, and we kind of look at ourselves as the idea people and try mm-hmm. and drive the product design that way. You talk about digital film works and how that sort of helped spearhead or move you towards developing. With all this experience and with working with digital film works, how do you think that influences your, I want to I say uh, your GUI design, but... I guess how the editors are going to interact with the software. 
or with your plugins? Uh, we have a certain way in which we work, which we, we kind of hope that others and editors work maybe in a similar fashion as far as workflow goes. I, I mean, as far as design goes, we have Paul Miller as our chief programmer, and he was on the uh, Academy Award-winning team for Elastic Reality, which is the, oh, wow. you know, the first real commercial morphing product. And, you know, he's like a wizard at UI design. You know, he usually gets everything kind of worked out, and we look at it and say, yeah, it's pretty good, but, you know, can you move this? Can you do that? I don't quite understand this, but I think you should move it over here. Uh, and we try and look at it and just, you know, try and take a common-sense approach to it. You know, is it easy to use? Are things mm-hmm. laid out in a commonsensical manner? We try and just make it work for us and you know we put it out there and we we get input from users and we change things as necessary uh you Mm -hmm. know we don't pretend to know everything some people do work differently and and, you know we always try and uh integrate that input now i was gonna talk to you about the photocopy and the zmat how did the inspiration for developing these two plugins come about one of the tasks of you know uh, visual effects is you know putting together you know these disparate elements from all kinds of different places you know we for instance we did a shot on uh, anna and the king and there were some shots in miniature at the van nuys airport of a bridge and then there were scenic shots i think from god i I want to say it's Thailand now, but I can't remember. Uh, but it was somewhere in East Asia. You know, we had some backgrounds of mountains, and then we had uh, green screen elements of fighters running and shooting, and you had put all those elements together, shot at mm-hmm. totally different times, different film stocks, and you need to be able to match that. You need to be able to match those elements together. So from as far as photocopy goes, you've got that task of trying to match things, whether it's color, sharpness. You know, so there's a number of brightness, sharpness, grain, color, you know, all these elements to making sure all those things match so that the elements don't look like they're from different places. So it looks like Mm -hmm. one seamless composite. So from a functional standpoint, photocopy is just very useful to an editor to match multiple shots, whether shot with the same or different cameras at different times of the day. And and it's just a a nice, easy way to say, look, I want to match these three shots to this shot and have it all look good. And, and that's a huge time saver. For visual effects, of course, you want to make sure that all these separate elements are being matched together. And if you're still a photographer, you know, you're always constantly working with different color temperatures and, and trying to get all that matched together. So we took photocopy one step further. In addition to that approach of, you know, the functional approach, and say, let's, let's have something really stylistic here. Let's match a bunch of the best movies, neatest looking movies, you know, the paintings throughout the ages, different photographic processes, and allow people to take those looks, the, uh, the color, the grain, the texture, and apply it to their own images. And on the still side, what's great about photocopy is that you can also match the texture. So if you have a particular grain pattern, or a particular, if you're matching a painting with a certain type of brush stroke, you can get the look and feel of that texture. We sample a certain area and then replicate it and then you can apply that and set the intensity however you like. So, you know, we, we looked at it first as a functional tool and then tried to look at it as a stylistic tool for creating all these different looks. You may find a particular painting or photograph that you say, hey, I really like that look. I'd like to use that in my movie or on my photo. Copy it, apply it, adjust the parameters to customize it to your photo, and you're, you're done. So it's, uh, you know, once, once we did the initial research and development on it, we were able to come up with a particular technique that we like. So, you know, when we develop, we we first try and think, can we make this available on the iPhone and the iPad? And that is the toughest task 
with a processor-intensive process because you know, the phones and the iPads have really weak processors. They have hardly any memory. Mm-hmm. So you have to not only make it run really fast, you have to run it really compact in terms of how much memory it uses. So, you know, those two things don't go together. You know, so we were able to really, I think, squeeze and change the algorithms and get it to get it going on the phone and the iPad. We, so we did that first. Great thing about doing that is that now when you run it on a regular multiprocessor machine, it screams, you know, because if it can run at a decent speed on the phone, it's going to be fast everywhere else. You guys have really set yourself apart in not only do you develop for something like Photoshop as well as Final Cut as well as Avid, but you also do different hardware, right? Like you also do the iPhone, the iPad, and um, I'm not too sure if you have Android stuff. I'm just We don't yet. So why is it so important to, to make sure that you're so diverse like this, especially with, with the iPhone? Uh, apps that you've been creating. Well, if you take a look around, you know, the, the economy is, is uh, kind of a moving target. So we're not economists, but, you know, when everything started to hit the fan uh, mm-hmm. a couple years ago with the economy, you know, a lot of editing houses, you know, were laying off people. Corpor- corporations were spending less money on doing video production, you know, and it's just a, a steamroller effect. Our editors, artists, photographers, when you don't have a whole lot of money, you buy what you need, and you mm-hmm. only buy what you need. So, like, all other companies that do that were in the kind of work that we were in, you know, everybody saw a, 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 dro- a certain drop in sales. One company that may have had a larger drop than others, but you know, unbeknownst to us, we didn't know this. Of course, was happening. You know, we didn't see it coming. But we were working on the iPhone stuff at the, at, at, you know, kind of concurrent with that. And you know, those iPhone sales were a huge boost for us when some of the higher end products started to see a slowdown. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important, you know, there's people have a dollar, two dollars, three dollars to buy an application for their phone. They may not necessarily feel like they need a compositing, a $600 compositing package or a 400 or $300 uh, package. They may say, you know what, I, I can get by with what I already have for now. I'm going to wait till I can get more work. So for us, it's been a nice supplement to the normal work we do. And we, we have uh, our development workflow set up in such a way that once we actually get the algorithms and the coding done, you know, there's a certain amount of legwork for each platform. Mm-hmm. Avid does one thing, Final Cut does another, Photoshop does this. Uh, you know, there's all these little idiosyncrasies for each. But, you know, once we get the basic uh, algorithms down, it's just really kind of just dog work to, to you know, to pump out the different platforms. Cause they, then we've done all that work to, to figure out what we need, need to do for everybody. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, Apple approached us early on because we were one of the first people who did Aperture plugins for them. Oh, wow. And uh, they said, hey, guys, you know, we're you know, coming out with this phone stuff and we want to look at it. And oh, we wow. said, okay. I mean, we dragged our feet a little bit, uh, but then we came out with whatever we thought was applicable to the phones. And, you know, it's been good supplemental income. Well, I'd like to talk to you also about uh, Composite Suite Pro. I was wondering how that came about and how that was developed and how you guys have pushed it so that it sets itself apart from other effects plugins. A composite suite pro was it started off as composite suite and then we added the pro to it. It was our first set. You know, we started off initially back in 2000 and um, we, you know, this was some of our again some of our tools that we were using in house. For instance, the holdout composite, you know, was used to composite fire, smoke and explosions using the exact same techniques that we were using on the movies that we were working on. You know, the edge compositing, again, another technique that we were using, you know, to get good composites, seamless composites. You know, we had a particular way that we keyed and made maps 
So, again, we, we tried to pull together all these different pieces that we used. And, you know, at the time, there was, uh, you know, far fewer plug-in companies. The editing systems, you know, at the time, Avid, Avid well, and, and even to this day, Avid is, you know, probably not the tool of choice to do effects work. You know, After Effects and, and even Final Cut has a little bit easier flow for doing effects. The Avid guys were ecstatic that, you know, as simple as it sounds, you know, we had a, a shadow mid-tone highlight, a color corrector, and at the time, they didn't have that. So just to do basic color correction what's considered basic now that that was like a that was like a great thing uh, you know so again we have we have certain modules we have a match generator module we have a certain type of blur and, and tinting and certain way that we do composites we have certain ways that we do glows we and, and we have these modules that we kind of mix and match you know depending on what the filter is uh, for different uses and, and again for instance uh, film mask you know the, the film mask plugin is great for shooting there's an HD mask and a film mask but you know you want to be able to go in there and see what's going to actually be projected in film and you know most of these systems don't have any of this stuff HD masks will show you the portion of the HD frame that will show up on film when you transfer your HD to film you know we tried to put in composite suite to us was always like hey Here's the useful stuff. This is, this is the stuff that we use, that we need, and the work that we do. It's not the flashy, turn your picture into a bunch of bubbles. And, you know, we weren't trying to compete with the other plug-in companies at the time that were doing kind of this very stylized, flashy, knit stuff. Mm-hmm. We said, let's, let's put out stuff that we would use ourselves in the, in the work that we do. Now, with the development of Lion and the new Final Cut Pro X, what are your guys' plans for, for support for these new updates? We're looking into it. It's really kind of a difficult situation because, you know, Apple basically provided the software development kit at the same time that they released FCPX. So developers weren't really, didn't have an opportunity to give input uh, as to their needs. And so developers are now looking at what is available, what you can and can't do. And I think there's been a lot of back and forth with Apple about, hey, we need this to be able to make our plugins work in your system. And Apple has always has also asked that the plugins for their market be simplified. So I think that Apple's going after maybe a more of a mass market approach where there's less adjustments, simpler to use. Uh, you know, we just have to look at that and see how that fits in with our philosophy. And, you know, we're looking at the development kit. There's certain things that I think Apple needs to fix on their end before we can do everything that we'd like to do. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things. You know, we want to be able to open up custom interfaces and overlays and be able to address different frames at different points in time. You know, there's a lot of mechanics in these software development kits that say, I mean, if all you're doing is dragging a slider and changing the color, well, what they have is, is good. You know, you don't need anything else. But, like, let's say, for instance, photocopy, we need to open up a custom user interface, pass parameters back and forth, and, uh, you know, the image, we pull the image over so you can see a preview. You know, we need to make sure that the image doesn't come upside down, doesn't come in upside down and strange colors. You know, there's, there's a lot of mechanics behind the scenes that we need to get right between what we do and what they provide, and if they don't have something that we need, we need to tell them, then we need to figure out how long it's going to take for them to update it so that we can get what we need. You, you know, and w- when you're dealing with, uh, whether it's Adobe, Avid, or Apple, they have their own time schedules, as, as mm-hmm. do we. You know, we need to just look at it. So we've, we've always catered to professional editors. You know, that's our background. You know, we've catered to more of a mass market amateur prosumers with our iPhone and iPad applications. You know, so it's not like we don't deal with that. So it's just that we have plugins uh, that have a lot of parameters and a lot of control 
to do certain things. You, you know, we're trying to grapple with, well, I mean, how do we feel about taking a plug-in that maybe has 20 parameters and making it only three? Is that going to piss off the professional but make the prosumer happy? And there's a lot more prosumers. There's a yeah. lot less professionals. I mean, so because of the state of FCPX and certain functionality not being there or carried over from FCP7, you know, I don't, I don't have a good sense of what the current user base is doing. Are they staying on FCP7 and going to stay there as long as they can? Uh, or are they jumping immediately over to FCPX and demanding the same tools that they had before, same control? Um, I, you know, I almost kind of feel like, you know, we need to develop what we had before to provide the same control that we previously had, mm-hmm. and then maybe also to develop some other sets that are simpler, less control for, you know, the newer market out there. But, but again, we haven't, we haven't really addressed the, you know, the lower-end markets. Like, you know, there's a lot of uh, Vegas users. You know, certainly, you know, I don't want to say everybody uses Vegas as a low-end user, but, I, I mean, I think it's on a different tier than Final Cut and Avid and Premiere. Different kind of person that uses, you know, the old Pinnacle products, you know, they're sold to Avid and the Vegas. There, there's there's a, another set of lower tier editing products that go for a lower end market. We've never really chosen to get into that market. We kind of feel like now that's where FCPX is at the current state. Where it is today. In a year, if they put all the stuff back in and it's back where it was, well, that's a different story. I have one last uh, question for you, and I ask this of everyone in the interview, and that's, uh, what's your favorite Guilty Pleasure film to watch? Um, well, I, I'm going to have to say uh, Reservoir Dogs, because mm-hmm. I, I, just, uh, I, I just watched it uh, uh, about a week ago. Yeah, it's, uh, I have to say that. And uh, where can people get your, your plugins? It's uh, digitalfilmtools.com. Uh, and also through the Mac App Store, uh, okay. we sell a f- we sell a few applications through there. But all our da- all our plugins are sold directly from the Digital Film Tools website. Well, thanks very much for letting me interview. Yeah, no problem. Well, that was my interview with Marco. I'd like to thank Marco for allowing me to interview him. Now, I mentioned that Lauren isn't here. Our schedules couldn't meet. She's on a deadline. However, I do have a few things to note before I sign off. We do have a pub night September eighth at uh, Jack Astor's here in Toronto and if you're in Toronto make sure to check it out you can always check it out at aotg.com you'll see the CN Tower on the right hand side I have two articles coming out uh, one for Movie Maker Magazine on upcoming editors as well as a article on 3D editing techniques now the other thing I wanted to bring up is that uh, each week I take part in post chat with a few other great editors so if you're on Twitter Make sure to check out PostChat. You can search for that handle at PostChat. Or you can go to postchat.wordpress.com. And you can figure out how to take part. And basically, we just every week talk post-production. So if you're interested in that, make sure to check that out. Of course, you can always get a hold of me. Info at artoftheguillotine.com. On Twitter, at artguillotine. Or via Facebook, facebook.com slash artguillotine. Remember, we're still giving away. We still have two big, huge prizes to give away. We still have Black Magic's Resolve to give away, as well as Noise Industries FX Factory. We also have an iPad that we're giving away. So next week, if you're not signed up, all you have to do is go to artoftheguillotine.com, sign up, and you're in. Once you've logged in or created your account, your name's put into the hat. Well, I'd like to thank Marco for allowing me to interview. I'd like to thank Lauren Woodcock, my producer. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.